0: Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider
1: of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Luke, Bike Radar's Deputy Editor, and today I'm joined by Simon von Bromley, Bike Radar's senior technical writer, and today the pair of us cheeky gossip girls are going to be going through the most salacious, hottest rumours for world tour tech in 2024. The men's world tour begins on the 16th of January in Adelaide with the tour Down Under, which traditionally is the place where we'll see brands begin to tease or release new tech more on the teasing side of things rather than releases. It is a big race. It's always very exciting start of the year and so on. But you know, it's not the it's not the sort of headline event. So we'll see early snippets of new tech being teased. And given this is an Olympic year, we imagine we're also going to see possibly more this year than previously. Don't know. A bit speculative, but we've already got a taste of things to come. Simon, let's just dive straight in. The biggest news so far to come out from uh, early season training camps is the possible release of a new Trek road bike. Give me the goss.
0: Yeah, that's right. So as as these things often do, a uh, kind of image leaked on an online forum, it kind of looked like someone would take a screen grab of someone's Instagram story. Not, not really sure whose, because obviously they'd cropped out the name, but it appeared to show uh, Guilo Ciccone of the Little Trek team riding an unbranded, but red, and uh quite Madone-esque, lightweight looking road bike. So yeah, kind of kind of interesting. It on, on paper, given the Amonda was launched, I think maybe. Yeah, 2020. Four, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So basically nearly four years ago now, this looks like a kind of you know, amonda plus ISOFlow. And now, you know, for those who uh aren't aware, isoflow is a nice big hole in the seat tube <laughs> that Trek claims is uh makes the bike more comfortable and more aerodynamic. Now you know, on the face of it, that all seems very simple. Yeah, it's the new the You know, nailed on. the The only thing that's kind of giving me pause for uh, thought on this is is that it makes it very similar to the Madone. And I wonder if Trek would have two bikes that both have that very distinctive kind of IsoFlow cantilevered seat post look. You know, the Madone is not a heavy bike, especially in the kind of you know uber pricey SLR vo- version. So if this is only going to, you know, if this is going to be kind of, you know, with the with the UCI weight limit being what it is, 6.8 kilos, if this is only going to be a couple of hundred grams heavier, is it realistic Trek's going to have two bikes in its range that look so similar? I wonder, could they be about to consolidate, Jack? What do you
1: reckon? Ooh, consolidate? No, probably not. I, I wouldn't think so. Like, like people... People like lightweight all-rounder bikes. I think that's a pretty universal truth. I I would be very surprised if the Amonda disappeared from Trek's range. My gut feeling is that this is perhaps, and I'm really guessing here, I think this could be a new Madone. Now, that sounds kind of mad, given that the Madone is not that old. But consider, like, the Madone uh, prior to the Isoflow version was updated, like, quite, like pretty long time ago there hadn't been any significant significant updates for some time my feeling and i am speculating here is that the madone was perhaps delayed slightly the as in the isoflow version and this is the subsequent generation that for is probably back on track for its release cycle i am really guessing here but i I just think as you said the big cantilevered unusual seat tube design like that's very distinctive and very aero like and I think the Amanda is more of an every person's bike so to include that in there would make it quite divisive i I just don't think from a selling bike's point of view it would be the the choice track would make but that is purely speculative Why why do you why do you think they might consolidate Simon?
0: Well, I just, you know, it's, it's been a kind of wider trend that we've seen throughout kind of road bikes recently. And, you know, we've, we talked about this before in that when we talked about the kind of Van Rysel RCR, that I think everyone's being very influenced by the kind of Specialized Tarmac SL7. You know, mm. when Specialized released the S- Tarmac SL7, they killed off the Venge, their aero bike, and they just kind of moved towards having, mm. you know, one do-it-all lightweight and aero road bike. And since then, a lot of brands have kind of copied that. Um you know, and it makes sense for you know for for punters because obviously punters are not gonna buy an aero and a lightweight bike, or most
1: punters aren't. So come on, Jack. So so your suggestion is that the Madone may I mean the Madone as we know it is a like big chunky aero bike could go and we just have a new madone which is a bit more of an all-rounder is that your suggestion
0: yeah my suggestion is that this becomes the kind of lightweight era all-rounder race bike for trek um and that you know that leaves the amanda free perhaps to go back to its true weight weenie days and you know Mm. i don't want to suggest that you know trek is kind of just copying specialized but i think the AFOS has been another bike that very influential has been very popular and potentially very influential and this whole idea of you know a UCI rule-breaking featherweight bike, I think, still holds a lot of sway with a lot of riders. You know, the Amanda is supposed to be the lightweight climbing platform, but realistically, it's not act- you know, it's not that much lighter than a top-spec Madone because once you kind of added all the components, the, the the differences in frame set weight only equate to kind of you know a, a couple of hundred grams.
1: Mm, because you know they've been yeah. aiming
0: to hit that six point eight kilogram mark, and I wonder if. Yeah, making it making the next Amonda less aerodynamic and much lighter might be what they want to do.
1: The great irony in all this is if the Madone does become like a bit more of a, ooh, sort of aero all rounder, but it's kind of lightweight. It's basically going back to what the Madone was exactly before the Amonda yeah. kind of <laughs> took its place, just with the addition of wider tires and. Integrated room cable room. Yeah, an integrated cable room, like, like <laughs> yeah, from the a design... F- the 2015 Madone, t- right? Yeah, very cool bike. I, sh- I rode the Amanda when it came out in 2020. I did really like it, but you are right in saying, like, it is by no means like a, a super lightweight bike and maybe when it first launched, like, we did lean into that a little bit in our coverage, like, pointing out this is not as light as the old one. It is a bit more all-roundery, but the influence of the ethos shouldn't be overlooked there where it's a specialized as with trek as with giant canyon very influential brand will shape people's perceptions even if it is imperceptibly about what a lightweight bike is and if you were someone who's like yeah i want a lightweight bike from a mainstream brand you'd probably be looking at the ethos most realistically these days uh, looking at the market. Which does make me wonder. I wonder what will happen with the old Super 6 with Cannondale if they did follow um, follow Super. Anyway, that's a, a topic for a different day. Any, any final thoughts on this bike, Simon?
0: Yeah, I, ju- I I think just to to reiterate the point about the kind of Trek Emonda being a classic of the hill climb genre. You know, mm. if following your excellent coverage from the hill climb nationals this year, Jack, we would have seen plenty of uh, Trek of old Trek And I'm always amazed when I look back on BikeRadar.com's coverage of you know Emonda's gone past, and there's you know articles about news stories about f- sub five kilogram mm. Trek Emondas. You know, like the, the current Trek yeah, very light bike in a, in a very in, in a in a kind of bling spec, but it is still realistically only going to be just sub seven kilos. Which, when you're paying kind of fourteen thousand pounds for that top spec bike, you know, it it, it it's kind of I think people. Want something else, and 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 obviously, you know, the current Trek Commander is, you know, on paper, probably a faster bike than that old five kilo one because it has more aer- aerodynamic tubing. But the people who care about weight just don't really care about saving eight seconds at Mont Ventoux. You know, it's it's not yeah. what the, it's not what they're buying that bike for.
1: eBay Motors is here for the ride. I think I, I think one of the last generation, truly lightweight amondas with a direct mount rim brakes, that's up there as one of my, like, bikes I wish I had, with the integrated seat post just for maximum 2010s-ish 20... sort of <laughs> cool maximum kudos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: maximum difficulty at home. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean, you can't put a price on looking good sign. And a,
0: you want a BB90 bottom bracket with it as well, right?
1: Uh, Oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) Anyway, you can read all about the new Trek road bike we spotted on Bikeradio.com. There's a link in the podcast description. On to our next tech scoop of the year. And it's the site of quite an unusual cask aero helmet. Simon, you will not be caught in anything except an aero helmet. So who better to talk about this than you?
0: Yeah, um, so... In, Ineos or Team Ineos Grenadiers, as they're kind of given their full name. Um, they obviously have just signed with a new kit sponsor and they were revealing their new kit, as the teams often do at this time of year. Obviously, they got a kind of like slightly different colorway to previous years. Um, but the kind of thing that stole the show was this new cask helmet that um, uh, Filippo Garner and a lot of the other riders in the kind of photo shoot were wearing. Now, f- just from you know a kind of front on view, it looks to be a kind of update to the Utopia Y, which was, you know, a kind of fairly recent update to the Utopia. And that's their kind of, you know, most aerodynamic road helmet. A little bit influenced by something like the Specialized Evade, I would have thought. But um, this helmet is kind of interesting. And it has a particularly, I think this is going to turn out to be quite a divisive feature. Essentially, the, as, as the helmet wraps around your head, it starts to cover the tops of your ears, and then kind of goes back round into a kind of almost like Bambi cast Bambino like bobtail, uh, and it has a kind of like completely closed shell on the top of it. It's kind of, so it's, it's kind of like a time trial helmet. It reminds me a bit of the the laser time trial helmet that you know Primus Roglic famously discarded the visor for that final time trial in the twenty twenty Tour de France. Great recall. Yeah, and you and, you know, I'm sure. This is more aerodynamic, right? Your ears are not very, you know, especially if you've got big ones. Great got- big lugs like you, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially if you've got good hearing. Uh, ears, I'm sure, are not very aerodynamic. You know, that's why time trial helmets always cover your ears, for example. But, you know, it's kind of just one of those things that I I think consumers might not like. You know, it's a bit. it reminds me a bit of the kind of, the, you might remember the Giro Air Attack, uh, the one that looked, everyone said looked like a salad bowl. I you and, said, and for a, for I you a, for a,
1: the Giro ear attack there,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but Giro for a while kept making integrated visors for their aero helmets.
1: Oakley went through a real phase of that as well when Oakley were doing more in in helmets. Um, they made loads with the weird integrated visors. I actually used to see a guy commuting in one quite a lot. Uh, bold look.
0: Yeah. And and I, and it just never caught on, you know, people just didn't, and, you know, they, they made you look like, I, I think it's because they made you look like you were taking it too seriously. You know, <laughs> like, it's like you thought like you were a Top Gun pilot.
1: <laughs> Robocop and Top Gun.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so they just never really caught on. So it will be really interesting to see, you know, there, obviously there is, there's always, you know, for, for professional athletes, you know, these guys are paid to win bike races, and, and I'm sure that they will wear something if it's faster and they won't care what it looks like. And there's going to be a sizable proportion of consumers out there who will be like that too, right? You know, things like the POC Tempor, for example, very ugly helmet, very ugly time trial helmet. But it, it had a real surge in popularity in recent years with time trialists in the UK. And, you know, POC was able to sell those for fairly decent money. So... Yeah, it'll be kind of interesting. I'm sure like every other cask helmet that we've tried, it'll be kind of, you know, comfortable, well-made and and all of those things. But I, I, I do think this kind of, yeah, this ear covering is going to be divisive. I mean, w- will we see you
1: in this helmet, Jack? No, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I discovered some years ago that I have a very pock-shaped helmet, a uh, helmet? Pock-shaped head. And I find it very difficult to go outside anything else. As you know, Simon, I'm a very famously sweaty and uncomfortable man when I'm cycling. <laughs> and I find excess pressure on my temples when I'm cycling. Quite upsetting, actually, almost, almost to the point of distress. So I'm very, un, un, I'm very unwilling to change, as a man in his 30s now should be. Grumpy and unwilling to accept new things. I, I think that this cask helmet, it's quite a boring comparison, but it's probably one of the more toadstool-like helmets I've seen in a while. This sort of <laughs> rounded, the rounded cup as it sort of curves inward at the ears is unusual. I, I had one question for you, Simon. Um, Gary Walker, our beloved production manager on uh, Bike Radar, we were having a discussion yesterday when you submit, or it was Jack Evans, I think, submitted the copy for this story yesterday. And we were trying to work out where Bobtail comes from. What is the what is the etymology of the phrase bobtail? What does it mean? Is it relation relevant? Oh, sorry, a reference to a bobcat? What is, I would what is have,
0: it? Yeah, I would have thought so. A bob, you know, bob bob bobtail cats. Don't they have a sh- little short tail?
1: A little stubby tail.
0: Yeah, I, I would have, I would have thought it's that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, that's a that's a fair question. I, if I had to guess, I would have said it comes from yeah bobcats and their and their wee little short tails.
1: Okay, well, but, um, if, but I don't you... know. But I
0: mean, obviously, yeah, it was kind of yeah everyone would have describe the the uh, kind of cask bambino that team sky uh you know which is what team Ineos grenadiers was formerly made famous during the kind of 2012 to 2015 era
1: your favorite era of cycling tech no no <laughs> <laughs> um if you know the answer to this red hot question send it to <laughs> podcast at you know we could just google it but it's much more fun to hear from you <laughs> um i'll put the question back to you simon would this tempt you away from your favorite aero helmet well, I guess you're going you're gonna to say it depends on how it tests in a wind tunnel. Give me a really I, sensible answer.
0: I think, yeah, I mean, it kind of is, that is the answer in the sense that because, the thing, the thing with helmets is helmets tend to be quite um, personal, you know, in, this, in the sense that because they are like designed around to be, you know, they're optimized for certain rider positions, certain body shapes, you know, say, say this, this one may have been designed around a CFD model of Filippo Garner, for example. And and from what I've kind of, you know, read and, and heard from various experts is that helmets can be quite uh kind of individual. So what is optimal for one person, you know, th- th- may not be optimal for another and so on. And so basically, you know, we Didn't see the you... little tra-
1: I was gonna you had quite a good story about this with oh who was it? It was a UK rider with a giant head. You tell me this story oh, once uh, every yeah. six months. Yeah, <laughs> so
0: um it's Callum, is the Scot the Scottish yes. guy. Um Callum Skinner, yeah. So he, I'm going to tell this story again because I absolutely love it. He, um, f- you know, a former GB athlete, was at the all the Olympic Games. You know, one of the t- one of Team GB's um, top sp- top track sprinters, and he always wore a carbon fiber Kabuto helmet, which is a Japanese brand. You can't really get them here in in, in the kind of West. They're very rare, uh, and he didn't wear the the ones that all the other t- the rest of the team were wearing. Were these kind of like uh, custom made helmets that actually i think they're made by a bristol based firm i can't remember the name but we've covered it on bike radar before and i was like wow this just you know that's team gb's geniuses what they're doing is they've they've tested it and this helmet happens to be super fast for callum skinner and that's why he is wearing it when all the other riders are not you know And then yeah, I heard a podcast he did with um, you know someone else, and it turned out he just had a massive head, and that was the only helmet on the market that fit him.
1: (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) Good, healthy Scottish stock with a big head.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so really big brain and uh, really big head, but but yeah, like you know, do you see the little Trek team are quite good Trek or Bontrager, I suppose. No, it is Trek. Trek, Trek, Yeah, they've rebranded the helmets now.
1: Bontrager to Trek. I think the Bontrager name is sort of being a little bit phased out with Trek. Mm. That's just my outside perception. I think it'll probably stick with the wheels, but the finishing kit and components and so on, I think is going to Trek. Anyway, sorry. Back to but you.
0: my point with that is that Trek doesn't make a time trial helmet. So their professional riders are free to choose. and They just wear unbranded uh, helmets from other manufacturers. Um, and so you'll see a lot of different helmets on the riders. You know, Guilu Ciccone, who I mentioned earlier, has been seen wearing a Poc tempo. I think uh, Mads Pedersen wears a Met Drone. You know, like some of them wear Giro helmets. So, so you know with, with, you know, with any Oscar and ideas, they're sponsored by Cask. Cask makes about six different time trial helmets. And you often see the riders wearing different models. So I think to kind of, you know, circuitously get back to the point, <laughs> I might be tempted to wear it if I'd been to a wind tunnel and it had tested incredibly fast. If I was, if I was a race, if I still raced and I knew it was definitely faster, then I would wear it. But given I don't actually race anymore, and I don't know for a fact that it's faster, I think I'd just stick with a normal aero helmet.
1: And for the listeners who don't keep a close eye on your riding habits, what is your preferred aero helmet at the minute?
0: I mean, there are you know there are a number of good models. I really do. I, I think the Specialized Evade Free is very nice. It's uh, it's very light, well ventilated, very comfortable. You know, it, uh, people who I've spoken to in terms of aerodynamics seem to rate it quite highly. But you know I, I I've been testing a cask protoni icon recently which is a slightly more more of an all-rounder and that's that's really good as well um you know I have a hJC ibex that's very nice I think I think lasers um Kineticore is a good helmet although I don't really love the kind of caterpillar track mm-hmm. retention adjustment system but you know once it's on that's that's really good so I think that you know I think kind of any of the high end options are very very nice and and I think yeah, you know, to to your point earlier, for for the kind of punter who hasn't been to the wind tunnel and, and knows which one is fastest, I would just pick the one that's most most comfortable and not really worry about it,
1: or the one that looks coolest.
0: Well, yes, if you if they're all comfortable, then you can pick the one that looks cool.
1: <laughs> anyway, moving away from helmets, uh, we this one's a bit more speculative, but I I feel like there's a good. A fair to good chance we may see a little sneaky peek at an unreleased SRAM Red group set. Um, we discussed this in last Friday's podcast, but you know, I think it's almost a certainty there will be a new Red group set in 2023. And the Tour Down Under is as good a time as any, really, to, to be releasing or teasing a new group set. Red is quite long in the tooth now. If you get in early with you know, eyes fresh on your new group set that's maybe going to come later in the year. It's an Olympic year. I don't know, you know, you build a bit of hype as early on in the season as possible. I don't think that would be massively out of step with what SRAM has done in the past. For example, in 2019, January 2019, when this generation of red was released, it was first tour, uh, teased at the Saitama, Saitama uh, Tour de France crit in Japan, which is a very like, low-key race, really, in the grand scheme of things. What I imagine what
0: I imagine happened there is that because obviously the Tour Down Under is in Australia, it's miles away, is that I imagine whoever was riding the Tour Down Under and Saitama Criterium mm. went to that crit with the same bike that they then flew to Australia with.
1: Yeah, almost certainly. Um so you know, I, I think to to see the group set teased at the Tour Down Under, again, not the biggest race in the calendar by any means, but you know, a very high profile race, I I don't think would be a massive surprise. We should point out as well that the women's tour down under runs sort of concurrently with the men's. SRAM has got a huge presence in the women's world tour. I would be keeping a very close eye on there as well. Um, It's it's very large in profile, the women's world tour, and there's every chance it'll be snuck out there as much as it would be in some of the flagship men's teams. Simon Von Bromley, what do you think? Am I on the money or am I barking up the wrong tree? I
0: think I... Yeah, if I... I think you might be on the money, to be honest, because as, as you say, it's kind of around the same time SRAM launched it last time. Uh, they launched it in February 2019 last time officially. And so, yeah, teasing it now at the opening race would kind of kickstart the hype train, as people <laughs> like to say. Um, Do they? I Who was, says that? <laughs> no, I, don't, I like to say it. I like to say it. Um, I was kind of hoping we'd see it at a team training camp. To be, to be quite honest, I was disappointed that uh, Ciccone's trek didn't kill two birds with one stone and give us a give us a trek story and a new SRAM Red story because that would have been that would have been really convenient. Um... And, you know, we um, we saw some new levers being tested at Team Movistar's camp last year, but that's perhaps why we didn't see them this year because maybe, <laughs> maybe SRAM's representatives were a bit more tight on their sponsored teams this year and said, please be very careful mm. about when you're taking pictures of this new stuff. So, But, yeah, like, it would be a good time to launch something. and And I think if they, you know, I think it would be a smart time to launch something as well because I think there's not going to be anything, you know, I would be in incredibly surprised if there was anything big from the likes of Shimano or Campagnolo um, at this point. So no, I, I think chance. yeah, yeah. So I think if SRAM was to launch this, you know, relatively, relatively soon, start teasing it, I think they'd ha- they basically have the kind of like, you know, the run of the coverage for the next few months.
1: Wise stuff. Uh, to, to give you context with this, you know, Simon saying, "Oh, you know, we hope you see SRAM on them um, on the team track bikes." Or oh, sorry, the little trek bikes, like Simon does genuinely on his lunch times. Look at Getty <laughs> trying to look for new stuff. We spend a lot. We spend a lot of time sniffing around photos from uh, pro teams. Going, is that new? No. Is that new? Maybe. Lots i, think you, you know, I like. actually
0: i actually did that today i saw a little trek had dropped a new intro video for their 2024 team and i was like oh i wonder if there'll be anything i went and watched the whole video didn't listen to any of the interviews with you know mads Pedersen, teo or lizzie dyagan mm-hmm. just skipped straight through to any time was there. anyone riding a bike to see if i could get a 4k screen grab of the new trek amanda or a new sram red group set
1: simon it's why you're here i wouldn't change it <laughs> for the world <laughs> you really are the model student um <laughs> Onto to another of Simon Bromley's favourite topics. Uh, the UCI introduced a new rule towards the end of 2023 banning the now completely ubiquitous practice of turning levers inward on handlebars to give riders a more aerodynamic profile or a narrow profile or just an easier place to hold on to when they're trying to be aero on the handlebars. Now, they say this has been done to improve safety where bars aren't designed to have levers mounted at that sort of position and also in more extreme examples it it definitely can compromise a rider's ability to grab onto the levers i mean personally i think it's a bit of an overreaction in some regards like i ride with my levers a little bit inwards now i am after all a cycling influencer in 2024 so i must but i think uh, a theme of this year will be commissaires sniffing around and possibly at the most extreme end, maybe a couple cheeky disqualifications or last minute adjustments made to riders' bikes before races. Do you think it's going to have a profound impact uh, on racing, Simon, or do you think everyone's going to play ball?
0: I don't know. I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. I think, you know, funnily enough, last year at the Tour Down Under, there was a road bike time trial. uh, Really cool. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, the teams didn't want to ship time trial bikes around the world for you know a single day's racing um so the kind of the kind of race organizers just decided to run it on road bikes but we saw some pretty extreme positions as a result you know uh images of pelo bilbao of uh bahrain victorious went around and his levers kind of tilted in at like 45 degrees
1: (laughs) um
0: and you know it was a very extreme position it was essentially he was using a kind of kind of time trial position with, with these brake levers i think to be fair to the uci here um You know, people like Adam Hansen, who is the head of the kind of, you know, professional riders union, the the CPA, has come out and said that the UCI has research, which, you know, it hasn't published, but they claim to have research that they have seen cracks on handlebars, you know, carbon handlebars that have been a result of this, you know, if if the Mm. bike gets knocked with the lever in this position, it can cause it to crack, etc. And then, you know, the risk is, you know, we often see this in perfect, this is a real a kind of a, a wider issue in professional cycling, but, you know, riders crash, they get back on their bike and then they just carry on. Because if you get dropped throughout the race, you know, in a grand tour that can be, you know, it can just, it can be terminal that can finish your race. Uh, there's never a kind of stop to check that the bike is still safe to ride. And so I think the worry is that, you know, this is leading to, you potentially lead to handlebar failures you know a rider crashes mid-stage or you know drops his bike mid-stage or it even gets knocked in transport or something like that damages the handlebar and then they're involved in a kind of descent or a sprint finish and i don't you know i don't think these kind of risks are to be overplayed you know i mean it's i don't i want to kind of bring the tone of the podcast down but obviously you know cycling did experience a you know gino made a, you know sadly passed away in a, in a bike race last year now that wasn't related to any equipment failure but you know cycling is an inherently dangerous sport. you know they're they're riding at very fast speeds with ultralight kit. i I think kind of regulating things from a safety point of view is a good a good thing. Now, you know, whether the kind of position causes any handling issues, mm. y- you know I think there are kind of like there are degrees of inter- interpretation there i I think that if the fact that the UCI is going to allow a degree you know, still to be defined of tilt with flared handlebars will kind of perhaps prompt more riders to use flared handlebars, which then enable, you know, they kind of enable that wider position, slightly tilted in levers. Uh, but then you still have the wider drops for kind of better control when you're sprinting or descending. You know, I really like a kind of flared handlebar on a road bike. I think that's a good idea. You know, the Trek Madone has a flared handlebar. AeroCoach makes a flared handlebar. The Ribble Ultra SLR has a flared handlebar. So I think we, I think we will see more of those I, I don't know. I think I think every you know every time the UCI introduces a new rule, there tends to be a lot of kind of throwing up of hands and saying, "Oh, why can't they just leave stuff alone?" But but you know, a, a, a handlebar failure is is a serious problem. Yeah, you know, it, and 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 so I think if they have any evidence to suggest that it's this is possibly, you know, I'm, I'm sure component manufacturers have said they've asked component manufacturers, and I would imagine the component manufacturers say, "Yeah, we haven't designed." Our handlebars or these levers to be mounted like this. Now, of course, you could say, "Well, why why don't component manufacturers just change their designs?" <laughs> and that's maybe a fair point. But like, I guess, I guess Shimano kind,
1: kind of, of, of did a little bit with its new Dura-Ace levers, where they are designed now. Like, they have they tilt in slightly. Of, yeah, don't they, they know, have yeah. a degree of at their neutral position. I'm trying the best way to describe this at their neutral position. They do have a degree of inward tilt, which by the just all else aside, apart from aero safety. I think it's more comfortable I do I like from my my wrist it's a more natural hand position but that's besides the point
0: <laughs> but but I think you know I think acknowledging that and and this you know in classic UCI fashion that apparently you know, I I haven't seen this document but it was kind of circulated on a few other websites there is going to be a tool for checking the legality of handlebar tilt. So, I, I just, you know, I just imagine these commissaires going around with all their kind of little bespoke tools for measuring sock height and measuring lever tilt and they have that whole jig for measuring time trials and they've got their little checklist of what riders are what heights and stuff like that. I, I, you know, the job of being a kind of UCI commissaire m-
1: must be... You know it's a thankless task, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you just get turned into memes on the internet anyway. Um, we do have a story about the uh the handlebar tilt ban and also Simon's sort of analysis of what that could mean for racing in, in general. Put that put it in the podcast description as ever. A wonderful piece of analysis from the young Von Bromley. Um, this was one discussed in last week's podcast, but it's worth mentioning again that at the world tour level no Campagnolo. So in terms of tech gossip, we could say nothing from them. (laughs) That isn't to say they won't be represented at the top level of racing. I'm sure they'll be sponsoring some of the second tier teams and, you know, there'll be little bits of Campag floating around. But for the World Tour top end, Nara.
0: Yeah. So I believe they still have a pro team sponsorship. I think it's Bardiani. Mm -hmm. So we may well see them at the Giro d'Italia. Yeah, hopefully. Um, but yeah, you know, if it would it be a Giro
1: d'Italia about Campagnolo there? Well, no, if you're a massive Campag fan. But if you just believe in the racing, I'd say, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but as you say, yeah,
0: we're not going to see it anywhere else. And it's a shame. It's a shame. I think that's all we can say, really. It's a mm.
1: shame. Well... We'll see what happens in future We discussed this quite at length in on Friday's podcast. You should check it out. There was our um, tech predictions for 2024 and just talked about like why, perhaps, very speculatively, why Campagnolo may be doing this. Um, we're keen to hear your thoughts on that one. Um, we've got another bit of analysis on Campag coming up soon from Oscar Huckle, who's working on something just now and looking at their year ahead. Now, Simon, when I wrote the agenda for this podcast, I sort of fervently put a little, anything else, question mark at the end? Because... The great mind of Simon in Fashionable South Bristol whirs constantly with the goings-on of Pro Tech, and I've doubtless missed some key talking points. So tell me, what have I missed?
0: I mean, I think I, you know, just to kind of revisit the thing about UCI regulations, I, I think one thing I'm really surprised that we haven't seen anything on uh is heads heads down riding. Um you know, you kind of mentioned the analysis that I did in the kind of UCI turned-in brake levers thing Uh, and and this is kind of part of it and following stefan kung's crash at the uh
1: horrible horrible clip really Uh, like scary stuff
0: really bad so so for basically for those who aren't aware at the 2023 european time trial championships last september um stefan kung who is indisputably one of the world's best time trial riders you know he's not he's not just some chipper (laughs) you know um He basically was following a line on the road rather than looking where he was going because his kind of fastest time trial position dictates that he keep his head tucked down to his hands, and he essentially, you know, admitted as much in a kind of interview uh, afterwards to a to a kind of um, Swiss newspaper that he. I'm going to quote him here because I don't want you know he said, "I'm basically blind. I can only see a few meters ahead." So essentially, he was following the line on the road, just looking at it as if you would, if you were, say, riding around the velodrome track. But of course, the course doesn't always follow the the road, right? So the barriers, uh, which keep the spectators at bay and define the course, started veering off to take the riders in a different in a different direction. Stefan just just didn't see the barriers and he just rode straight into them. Uh, bear head in mind, first.
1: When you're seeing, you know, he's saying, "I'm seeing a few meters ahead," but he's also probably going like. 70K Seventy k an hour, clock, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so that a few meters doesn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, and he so he rode head first into a into a metal barrier. His helmet was completely destroyed. You know, I mean, it's mind boggling that they they let him finish. In my in my opinion, I mean, you know, there should be. I believe there are already some kind of rules in place around concussion protocols, but I can't believe he was allowed to get back on his bike and finish. Uh, he finished the race you know, covered in blood and was admitted to hospital, you know, with a serious head injury. Now heads down riding has been a real problem in time trialing for a number of years because heads, you know, by the kind of, by their, their natural round shape, like you said earlier, Jack, they're just not very aerodynamic. So obviously you can wear a helmet and that can help, but the really the best thing to do is to kind of get it down out of the way in line with your shoulders but that just means you can't see where you're going. Now, in the UK, riding with your head down in a you know a cycling time trials sanctioned race is banned and has been for a number of years. Because I, th- I you know, again, like I, I just don't want to bring the podcast down, but I believe there have been deaths associated with riders riding head down and then having incidents with cars. Now, of course, in pro racing, incidents with cars are thankfully you know very rare because they very they rare, run- but
1: not unheard of. <laughs> no, not unheard
0: of, but you know they run on closed circuits. But I think the UCI, I don't want to, you know, it's very, I know it's very easy to say something must be done. But I kind of feel that we have reached a point where something must be done. And, you know, Brian Cookson, who is a former president of the UCI, tweeted at the time, you know, the, the UCI must look at the technical regulations in order to stop this. Now, it's a, it's a difficult one to police because you know what defines head down riding you know how long do you have to do it if you you know if you look down at your garmin for example is that breaking the rules right it's a, it's a kind of a tricky one but i think there's always a degree of interpretation when we're discussing things like dangerous riding mm. for example and we regularly see sprinters getting disqualified for deviating from a line or you know kind of making a move that is deemed to be dangerous right and so I think commissaires should be empowered with a greater degree of kind of interpretation to suggest that you know this rider is constantly riding with his head down for example and is is not looking where they're going and they're going to have to you know it's difficult to disqualify people but I could easily imagine a thing where it's kind of like you know you could apply a time penalty so that therefore the kind of the risk You know the kind of advantage gain from riding with your head down is nullified by the fact that you're going to get a time penalty. You know, so you're not going to be saving time from riding with your head down. And I think then what would happen is we would see time trial positions evolve so that riders, you know, if you don't, if you can't ride with your head down because of the rules, we'll have to we'll change the time trial positions so that it's not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, and I, again, I'm not, I'm not sort of suggesting that this is an easy thing to regulate. And that may be why we haven't seen anything in a sense that the UCI is taking its time consulting with experts before they kind of introduce anything. Because, you know, if they introduce anything, they want to get it right. They don't want to have to, you know, they don't want to disqualify someone from an important race for that, for it to then be like feel, for, to feel unfair, for example. But, you know, like, I know, and it's not, you know, and it, this this kind of thing, this discussion happens in all sports, and I, you know, I don't want to say it's a bit like, you know, footballers aren't role models, right? I get mm-hmm. that, but what happens in the pro ranks influences what happens everywhere else, and you know, if the best time trialers in the world ride with their head down to go faster, then it it creates a competitive advantage that everyone else has to match. So everyone in the peloton suddenly, if they want to compete in time trials or not lose time, potentially has to ride with their head down and get it out of the way. And, and it's and I just think, yeah, something should be
1: done. I wonder if the reason why nothing has been done is, is as you say, policing it would be very complicated. And let's assume you've got a time trial and you've got a, hundreds of riders. How do you police hundreds of riders riding individually, as the individual time trial name suggests, um, all at once? Like, what an, an immense job, and then you consider that, that The logistics for that, for something like the tour, kind of easier because you've got lots of media coverage. But like, what about a small time trial in a stage race? I just I can imagine policing this would be, in some ways, despite the fact you're only focusing on one thing at one time, I imagine policing this would be very complicated. I, I suspect that yeah. might be one of the reasons why it's not changed. But I agree, I think that the tech implications of it are quite interesting as well. You're right in saying that if if you were not able to do this, it would influence in probably quite a meaningful way how people's positions evolve on, on bike. Like we've seen in recent years, like go back 15 years ago to time trials and the positions are just outrageously aggressive and probably arguably even less controlled than they are now with just how low riders' heads were. And today, oh, this is a topic for another day, but the you know, aero positions have changed a lot. I think the impact of this rule change or this proposed rule change from the great mind of von Bromley could <laughs> would have a really significant impact on tech, not just uh, rider safety. Hmm. I wonder uh, how much that would influence helmet design as well. You sort of touched on it with the cask, where like helmets, or sorry, the fastest helmet for a rider is dependent on position. I imagine if there was less deviation in position, helmets could be, you know, the, the the differences would probably be subtle, but I imagine they could better optimize it for more standardized positions in a way. So it wouldn't just be a sort of like, okay, this is safer, it would probably have much broader tech implications than even my little brain can imagine.
0: I kind of imagine that, you know, we would see less of the kind of short tail designs that are kind of designed that when you put your head down, they don't increase drag. You know, if you think of the specialised TT5, you know, the one with the head sock that Remco Mm -hmm. wears, you know, that is made to just integrate with his shoulders because he's exceptionally good at tucking his head down out of the way. Little turtle man. Yeah. Now I don't, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and say that Renko Venopol can't see where he's going on a time truck bike because, you know, I don't know. I'd have to wait for him to say. I can only say that Stefan Kung has said that he himself is is blind. Um, so perhaps, yeah, perhaps we'd see more of the return to the kind of classic style long tail helmets like we had in the past, which were, as you say, for when riders kind of had their heads sticking up in the wind, but then their, you know, arm rests about two metres away from their saddle. <laughs> I you know I, I completely agree this would be incredibly difficult to uh, enforce kind of on a blanket sense. What I would say is that you know of all the important riders, certainly any professional race would be you know covered by TV cameras. you know they always there's always a following car and you could have a commissaire in the you know you could potentially have a commissaire in the following car or you know just use the TV coverage to judge like they do with sprint finishers, for example you know i think elsewhere in the sport say like in a time trial organised by a national federation where there's no tv coverage or you know or whatever like i think you kind of have to be self policing in it to a degree you know in the same way that ctt does right like if a rider rides with their head down in a ctt race they are at risk of being disqualified from that from that race you know and a fellow competitor may make a complaint and say you know i, I saw this this guy riding with his head down along this dual carriageway you know <laughs> and Brass. like yeah but like <laughs> I know, I you, know. do you know what I mean like it's it, it's not a if, if we're all riding heads down along the dual ca- along the dual carriageway the a66 through keswick for example <laughs> then I think like you know it, it kind of has to be you know I don't want to be too kind of egalitarian about it but it has to be kind of self-policing to a degree like if riders can't be trusted not to look where they're going you know, like, what, what hope like, do what, we
1: have? <laughs>
0: what hope do we have? Like, you know, I get it that people are always going to kind of push the boundaries, but like, we have all of these. You know, I'm sure that most athletes would consider themselves to be, you know, honest athletes. And if there was a rule against riding with with your head down, because you know, because riding with your head down is dangerous and it would be technically cheating. Mm. You know, do you want to be the athlete who who kind of wins your local chipper race because you cheated and rode dangerously? Like, I I don't think like wise yeah, words. Yeah, in I, I, yeah. I I, th- I think I think I think the impact of not doing something and allowing this to continue might be, you know, like I don't I don't want to see another Stefan Kuhn crash. If you know
1: what I mean. Wise words, Simon. There's the um, Mark Hudson. He is the archivist. Of the Rough Stuff Fellowship. And he's also quite a keen odd axer. And some years ago, he did, I can't remember what ride it was, but quite an extreme odd axe, where it's like 1,500 kilometers or something daft. And he got Shermer's neck, which is a condition where basically riders lose the ability to hold their own head up um, because of riding, frankly, for far too long. But there's this fantastic photo on his Instagram of him riding along, um, having suffered Shermer's neck with a rope attached to the back of his saddle and onto the back of his helmet (laughs) to help him support his head perhaps simon that is the solution to head riding for riders we simply yoke them to their bikes (laughs) (laughs) yeah well we'll have to talk to a few
0: people who've done the race across america won't we yeah that's absolutely bananas
1: (laughs) yeah just not for me anyway that's our sort of, you know, early doors, world tour tech predictions. Safe to say your good friends at Bike Radar will be attending many, many races this year. It's, it's certainly a highlight of Not Simon's the Tour perf- Down Under, though, unfortunately. No, not the Tour Down Under. I did the Tour Down Under many years ago, uh, 2019. Unbelievably good fun. I was so, like, as a race, it's quite unusual for a stage race or like a big stage race where it's all based at the same, uh, like, event village in the middle of Adelaide. So we've got loads and loads of eyes and really cool tech. It's very buzzy. It's fun. The weather's nice. It was great. Um, but no, unfortunately, I think the first one we'll be at will be Paris-Roubaix. We'll be trudging around some muddy cobbles instead of sunshine yeah so We might have
0: someone at Strada Bianchi.
1: That's true. That's true. But nonetheless, we'll be at lots of World Tour races this year, bringing you all the latest tech gossip from the... Uh, from the front line of road racing. And keep your eyes peeled on bike radar for that throughout the year. We'll bring you plenty more podcasts, videos, all the best stuff as Simon wastes his lunchtimes trawling through Getty. Uh, <laughs> Simon, thank you very much for ever being the top tech gossipmonger in cycling. And we'll speak to you very soon